Welcome to another edition of Running the Race with Rob King. I'm Rob King. So glad that you're with us. We're going through the book of 1 Peter, and we can be, let's see, found on YouTube and also on uh, wherever you download your podcasts, which is uh, most of you I'm finding out is on uh, Apple iTunes on your phone. We just got done, let's see, downloading. We accomplished 10,000 downloads and I uh, just want to say thank you so much uh, for all of our friends and family and for probably the 5,000 times my mom downloaded uh, <laughs> the podcast. Uh, this is a podcast dedicated just to teaching the Word of God, and I'm so glad that you're with us wherever you're listening. I'm praying for you and so thankful for you. You can reach us uh, by email at uh, robkingpodcast at gmail.com. Love to answer any questions that you may have. Uh, you may have ideas, critiques, criticisms, uh, or just reach out. We're really glad that you're listening. Thank you so much. We continue on with First Peter, and this is an interesting section, a passage of Scripture that we're going to get to. So I begin with this thought. Why does it seem that so many Christians are so lame? <laughs> or why does it seem that the church in the United States seems to have so little efficacy or impact on the culture. There again, I could use the word lame, but I've already used it once. Why is it that we seem at times impotent? The Apostle Peter describes that we are aliens in the world. We are on a pilgrimage. We're in a hostile world. There's no doubt the world system is against Christianity and against Christ. Christ predicted this and told us that we would be strangers, that we would be persecuted, and the world would you know, hate us because they hated him. So I'm not really talking about the natural kind of hatred that comes from people who are dead towards God. I'm, I'm just thinking about the efficacy and power of Christians and our influence in our culture uh, at large. So what is it that makes a church powerful and influential in the world? What is it that makes a Christian, your own personal life, effective and powerful and have influence, even to be respected, live in a quiet and peaceable life and so that others would see that you are like Christ? And, and what, is it, what does it take? I mean, I know the world naturally hates us. Maybe, maybe I'm asking... Why isn't the church in better shape, and what would it look like if we were in really great shape? Well, some people answer this question when they think about reaching the world for Christ as Christians, and they think that we need to go about seeking signs and wonders. If we just had enough signs and wonders, then people would believe in Christ. Somehow, if we could do miracles every day, then the world would believe in Jesus. This is foolishness, by the way. Miracles don't lead people to faith in Christ. Jesus said that an evil generation looks for signs. He even said that if someone's raised from the dead, the world will not believe. It is not a miracle that empowers people's soul to be uh, right with God, to believe in God. Actually, God's design is that the gospel has inside of it the power of God to change a person's life. We understand that no matter the amount of miracles, you know, that we work in his name, that only God can work the miracle in a person's heart through the gospel by the leading of his spirit. It's all from him. Other people become zealous about like end times and they want to prophesy and predict new revelations or so-called new revelations. We see them on TV 
saying all kinds of unscriptural crazy things like they can control the weather and change the world by their false prognostications. How about that for a word? Mystical ideas, really. And it's it's kind of appealing if we could just with miracles or prophecy just change the world. Then, of course, we have this entire branch of Christianity that appears to promise worldly people the worldly things they want if they'll just give their lives to God. The promise of, you know, total financial success, uh, business acumen, and health in every situation, wealth, and all kinds of perfection in this world if they'll only give their, their life to Christ. So shouldn't we be a little bit suspicious if there's a gospel out there that's being preached especially on TV, that promises us everything that our flesh wants outside of God anyway. Before I came to Christ, I had all those desires, and now I can get that and have Christ. Shouldn't we be a little bit suspicious of that? I think all of these approaches stem from a basic lack of trust in the sufficiency and authority of the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the stumbling block to some and foolishness to others, as it's said in the Scripture. There's this pattern of salvation that's clearly laid out in Scripture. And, and, and not only not only are they not true in, in, in this, this worldly approach to reaching people, but they also undermine the true purpose of the church. And, and perhaps this is why we see sometimes the church being so ineffective. So, what is it that would make the church an authority in our culture and powerful in our proclamation? If you want to say it that way, brace yourself, because I think this answer may come as a bit of a surprise to you. The power and the efficacy of our lives is in our changed lives. It is in holiness or what we would call Christ-likeness. Bonafide, holy living by Christian people who really desire to glorify God. This is the greatest witness that Christ is the Savior of the world. That The fact is that we're, we're not powerful in our proclamation. I think many times because we lack Christ-likeness and holiness. I'm reminded of the story of uh, Mother Teresa when she traveled to Harvard. And... Uh, she stood up and gave a speech and everyone sat with rapt attention. You know, the room was full of intellectual types, of course, in this prestigious university. And the small, frail, unassuming, meek and mild woman spoke with great authority in a soft voice as she talked about the sin of premarital sex on a university campus, no less. She talked about the evil of abortion. She called sin a sin. She called worldliness, worldliness. And when she was done, you know what they did? They gave her a standing ovation. How could that be that in one of the most liberal universities in our country, they'd give a standing ovation to the likes of Mother Teresa when she was speaking words that were correcting a sinful culture? One of the reasons is because of the sacrifices, obviously, that she made to care for dying children in Calcutta. She had that authority from her sacrifice, uh, her life. They couldn't argue against that. The other reason is the fact that she was seen as holy. She had a sense of a holy authority, I think. I mean, 
Many times in our culture, Christians have no authority because they have no moral authority because we have so little in terms of holiness or Christ-likeness. You see people on TV who claim to be Christians, and, and I mention this a lot. You say, well, you've kind of hung up on these TV preachers, but you have to understand that there's millions, hundreds of millions of Christians who are fooled by these people every day. They claim to be Christians, but they're every bit as materialistic as anyone else. Um, on the other extreme, you have Christians who are just plain weird, fanatical, mystical, and seem to have the same spirit of this kind of new age spirit going on with all their prophet prophecies. <laughs> I almost couldn't say that. But let me ask you this. How many humble, meek, and holy Christian leaders do we see? I found this great quote from a New Testament commentary by John MacArthur, in which he says, he says this, the seeker-sensitive philosophy of church growth with a spiritual inclusivism and de-emphasis on doctrinal clarity and love for the truth has imbibed the world's marketing strategy and developed a kind of pop gospel that currently dominates the ecclesiastical landscape, the church landscape. As it continues to eliminate every bit of offensiveness from his communication and thus loses a grip on the true content of the biblical message, the church increasingly exhibits a self-centeredness grounded in secular psychology, pragmatism, and an eagerness to make unbelieving experts, in effect, the most influential church consultants. Why am I starting with this? Well, it's a good place to start because in this portion of 1 Peter, he's going to teach us our responsibility as Christians living in a hostile world. What are we supposed to actually look like? What are we supposed to actually live like in our culture with so many fallen Christian leaders? It would do us well to heed the advice of the Apostle Peter in living our responsibility towards God in holiness. Our holiness speaks louder than our words. Our lifestyle, our actual changed lifestyle really matters. So let's get into the passage. Here's what it says. First Peter chapter 4, 7 through 11 says this, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and a sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love co covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God, and whoever serves is to do it as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, in this passage, the Apostle Peter is going to give us three very basic parts of our Christian duty, our motivation for our spiritual duty, the, the rules of our spiritual duty, and then the result of our spiritual duty, or the, rather the, the, the purpose of it all. So in this passage, the Apostle Peter is going to give us those three basic parts of Christian duty, how we are to live. First of all, there's this motivational reason towards spiritual duty. He begins by saying that the end of all things is near. Now, what we need to understand is whenever the Apostle Peter or anyone else in the New Testament, for that matter, mentions the end, they're talking about the culmination. Not talking about the end as a point, but rather speaking of the culmination of all things. 
the, the fulfillment of all things. The end is near. The fulfillment of all things is near. And in this context, Peter is referring to Christ's second coming. Tradition tells us that the apostle Peter traveled with his wife during his ministry. It also tells us that she was crucified and that the apostle Peter watched as she was crucified. And he literally said to her while being crucified, remember the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine that moment? And then as you're probably familiar with, I think tradition also tells us that he felt unworthy to be crucified the same way the Lord was, so he asked to be crucified upside down. In this passage, he's telling us the same thing. This is something he comes back to time after time after time. Remember Jesus Christ. And this is the point of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance everything that Jesus has taught us. Remember Jesus Christ. And in this case, remember that he's coming. The culmination of all things is drawing near, so this should motivate you and give you reason to live a holy life. If you think that your father is coming home, you're going to live differently. My, my wife recently traveled to Illinois for a time, and Caleb went to Cincinnati. They were gone for a number of days, but I knew the time was drawing near when they would be home. And don't you know that before they came home, actually this time I did pretty well at keeping the house fairly tidy while they were gone, but I knew the day they were coming. I prepared I was ready. And this is what the Apostle Peter is saying. Be always on the alert. Don't, don't let the fact that the second coming of Christ has delayed 2,000 years make you think it's not coming. Or better said, maybe, maybe you think because it's been so long that he's not coming, coming, but he promised that he would return. And he said that he's going to, as the, the, the scripture says, kind of snatch the church away. It could be at any moment. The fact that it's been 2,000 years since the promise tells us, if anything, it's imminent and it's closer than it's ever been. His return is definitely approaching, and so we should live holy lives watchful and waiting for his return. This is a great incentive for holiness. Jesus Christ could come at any moment. Just a brief reminder that we believe in the Scripture that it teaches uh, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, Matthew 13, 14, and all of the book of Revelation. If you study that out, we believe that it teaches before the tribulation, there will be the rapture of the church, meeting him in the air, as it's described in scripture. Then the tribulation will happen for seven brutal years. I'm going to leave out some of the details, the likes of which the world has never seen. Then we will return with Christ for his thousand-year reign, his millennial reign. Then there will be one final battle, and the earth will be destroyed, the enemy defeated, cast into eternal hell. Then there will be a new heaven and a new earth that will come down, a new Jerusalem, and we will reign with him forever. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. So the Apostle Peter here is reminding us that the incentive for holy living is to remember that Jesus can return at any moment. 
I think of how Christ told these, these women who had oil in their lamps, they were waiting for the return of the king. And there were many parables that Jesus told just like this that emphasized watching and waiting and being ready. And the five women were ready and had oil, but when the king returned, the other five weren't prepared. They weren't ready. They were surprised. They immediately asked the other five to give them oil, but they refused. It was too late. They perished. The whole point of this parable and many others that Jesus told it was so that we would be watchful and ready. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he tell his disciples? Watch and pray, watch and pray, be ready. In other words, stay on guard and be ready. You should be living holy, I should be living holy, being ready for his return. This is what the Apostle Peter is telling us. We should live holy lives, fully dedicated to God, seeking first his kingdom, his authority, his rule in every area of our life because Jesus Christ is coming back for his church. Just maybe as a side note, we realize that we're in the last days, that we are in the last days. The description from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 4, the end of days, tells us this is obvious. He says this, but realize, Paul writes to Timothy, then in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. This is what we open with, that same kind of stuff. We shouldn't be surprised we're in the last days. We should also not be surprised that the world is in such an uproar and such a mess. We're in a culture right now that condemns people for doing good things and encourages people who are doing evil. There is vicious gossip and all kinds of people that love money and love themselves and they hate the things that are good and they promote the things that are evil as if they're good. It's one thing to say there's evil things. It's another thing to call an evil thing good and celebrate it. We should never celebrate what God won't celebrate. In our culture, we care more about what people think as opposed to what God thinks. We're far more concerned about offending some person than offending God. I'm not into offending people, but if I have to make a choice, I'll offend people over God anytime. We don't want to offend him. Luke chapter 12, this is another time where Jesus told about being ready. He said this, be dressed and ready and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him and when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves the master will find on the alert when he comes. Be ready, be on the alert. Suffice it to say, the Apostle Peter is encouraging us that our motivation behind holy living should be, first of all, remember Jesus and be ready for his imminent return. He's coming back. Moving further, the Apostle Peter gives us some rules or instructions for our duty. So it's one thing to say, be ready. Now, what do we need to be like? What do we need to be like? Be of sound judgment, he says. Sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving others. Be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And if you speak, speak as words of God. And if you serve, serve from that power from which God supplies. This is a key section where Peter's going to tell us how we can actually 
live a victorious Christian life, a life that is influential in all the right ways in the world, one that guarantees persecution, but it also guarantees a powerful witness. And in this section, he describes what it means to be a follower and learner of Jesus. In, in other words, just being a true disciple of Christ. What does it mean? What does it mean? How do we do that? Three basic elements he gives us. The first one is personal holiness. We talked about that. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So personal holiness. What does sound judgment mean? Sound judgment literally means to be in your right mind, to have self-control, not to be carried away with uncontrolled passion or emotion. This is the kind of sound mind that God gives you as you meditate on his word renewing your mind. This sober spirit and sound judgment means that you're, you're on the alert. We understand that holy living comes from, uh, from the Holy Spirit. I mean, he's called the Holy Spirit, not the silly spirit. And the Holy Spirit will make you holy, not silly. And how does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit authors the scripture. The Holy Spirit illuminates the scripture. And as we meditate on the scripture, the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier with the word of God. Jesus said, you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. So we are cleaned and sanctified as we look into his word. There's an understanding of him that we need to grow in. I'll say it this way. Theology changes you. Why? Because theology is the study, the understanding of who God actually is in scripture. You don't want to get God wrong. You want to know him, and to know him is to love him. And, and to know him and to think about him is to have his Holy Spirit renewing your mind, renewing your mind. It's interesting that we're called to be renewed in our minds. We're not to be called, we're not called in Scripture to be renewed in our emotions, although our emotions will be renewed as our mind is renewed. So many Christians today believe that they should have some grand experience all the time, experience and emotions, and you can be whipped up into that at a... ACDC concert, you know, those aren't necessarily right emotions, but the Word of God teaches us that our, our mind is renewed. We're given sound judgment and wisdom from His Word. Thinking that our Christian life is based purely on emotion would be like saying our marriage is based on emotion. Well, I had an experience. Well, okay. But that experience isn't sustainable. It might not even be prove, proven or provable by the Word of God. Uh, it's more important, more important than having an experience or seeking some experience is seeking God through His Word. Proper feelings, proper emotions follow proper, what I'll call doctrine, the way we think about God, His Word. When you think about God rightly, your feelings will also be appropriate. In the same way in our marriage, we must actively love our mate by choice, agape, chosen love. We choose by an act of our will to love sacrificially our mate for their good. And it's not always for our good. It's for their good. And it's not always easy. A lot of times it's difficult. And what happens then, the right feelings follow. In the same way that you don't fall in and out of love every day in your marriage because your marriage is a choice. So you don't fall in and out of salvation with Jesus when you understand the renewing of your mind. You can actually understand more of what salvation actually entails. You study his word. So we're renewed by, how do I want to say this? We're, we're renewed and, and starting to live in a 
in personal holiness as the Holy Spirit shows us what the Word of God means. But we're also to have a mutual love for one another. So first he talks about holiness, then he's going to talk about a mutual love for one another. He said, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. This fervent love means a stretching. It means it's, it's straining and giving your whole effort to love. This sacrificial love is not something merely sentimental. It's not a feeling. Here again, it's not. He's reminding us that no matter how poorly you're treated, you're to love, stretch out, and and really love one another. In this way, it covers even people sinning against us because we're completely dedicated to stretch out in our love for one another. This is the same way. This is him again saying, "Remember Christ." In the same way that Christ stretched out for us, His great love for us covered our sin. We're now to cover the sins of others with our great love for them. I think it's interesting that the Apostle Peter continually points back to Christ as a reminder that we are ultimately to live just like Jesus lived. If you want to look at somebody's life and say, you know, are they following Christ? Are they a Christian? Judge the fruit of their life. What does it look like? How much do they look like Jesus? Listen. Jesus lived humbly and lowly and dependent on the Father, and he had an anointing from the Holy One that was undeniable, and he suffered, and in this suffering, he still had victory, and now we're to live humble and dependent on the Father. We're, we have an anointing from the Holy One that is the Holy Spirit living in us, and it's undeniable, and as we suffer, we too can see victory in our suffering just like Jesus Christ did by his power. That's how we live. Okay, so the Apostle Peter tells us that uh, we're to live in personal holiness, have a love for one another, and then what else? Lastly, he calls us to this, to serve one another. Serve one another. True sign of Christianity. Holiness, love, and service. As each one has received a special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God, and whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by strength which God supplies. So we started off by saying, why isn't the church very powerful? But imagine, imagine you and me and every Christian that you know, and and, and imagine that they're holy and they're loving and they're humble and they're a servant. That's where the power is, being like Christ. The Apostle Peter here is rehearsing some of what the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, about spiritual gifts. He's saying that all of us have gifts of speaking or serving and and that they need to be employed in the church for the glory of God, the edification of others. 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, now there are very varieties or variations of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The Apostle Peter speaks some convicting words. He's telling us to be good stewards of the gift that God has supplied. Do you want to live a Christian life that's powerful in the Word? Live holy? Live in love for others? And serve one another? Also interesting how we each have different spiritual gifts. I I think the gift mix in each one of us is about as unique as our own fingerprint. And the point of the gift is not us or our personality. Please, please understand this. We live in a culture that worships personality and worships people and worships fame. Even in the church, 
But the church is filled with humble people who are just thankful to have any gift at all. And all of the gifts are equal because the Lord is no respecter of persons and every gift is given to serve one another. It's given from God. It's given for the glory of God and for the good of other people. My wife is so hospitable and loves to help and serve and administrate. She's so kind. She's really organized. She's a unique gift to make every person I've ever met with her, she just makes every person feel so heard and so loved. It's a unique, unique gift. For me, the way that God has gifted me, it's easy for me to speak his words, study, and uh, to teach just like I'm teaching right now. Who cares? Don't get too wrapped up in trying to find out what your spiritual gift is. If you get into a church, you get into a body of believers and start to serve for the glory of God and for the good of other people, your gifts are going to naturally come out because God's given them to you by the Holy Spirit, and they're unique to you. You don't need to take a spiritual gifts test to find out what your spiritual gift is. I've been wanting to say that for a long time. I always despise these tests. To me, these tests seem self-centered, psychologically based, and they'd always have, you know, you'd fill them all out, and they'd tell you, what, what if you get the gift of martyrdom? I always thought that. You could only use that gift once. And who wants to be told they have that gift? Plus, isn't that something we all have a gift by the Holy Spirit that we could eventually, you know, that's not a very pleasant thought. The best way to find your spiritual gift is to go to church, get involved in church, start serving at your church, and let your gifts come out. Your gift is not the point. The giver of the gift is the point. And the receiver of the gifts are the people around you who are encouraged in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And all the glory goes to God anyway. Brings us naturally to the result, the last part of this passage. The intention of all this. Well, where are we going with all this? What's the, what's the point? All the, the point is the point of our whole life. The glory of God. So in all things... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is, a, this is a good word for anything that you're doing or anything that you're going through, especially if you're going through a difficult time. If you're going through a difficult time, this is great. Because I pray this prayer and I say, Lord, this is all for your glory. Do whatever you want to do in my life that will bring you the most glory. The glory of God is the point of our whole life. You have ordained it. You are overall. You are sovereign. You see it. You allowed it. This is happening. You brought it. You're overall. And what I want is your glory more than anything else. Anything that we do for the Lord in this life that brings even a reward to us in heaven, even that reward will be returned to Jesus anyway. The whole point of, of everything that we're doing is to bring glory to Jesus Christ, to honor the Father, to love the Holy Spirit. We're going to spend all eternity worshiping Him, and that's what we're doing right now with our life, worshiping Him, following Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. I'm, I'm just imagining a church that's filled with people who are humble, who love one another, I mean sacrificially, covering one another, serve one another, and live in real holiness. Can you imagine the impact that kind of church would have on its community in the world? Not this brand of famous, skinny, jean-wearing, hipster, good-looking, techno-lights, pyrotechnic concert culture that the church seems to be enamored with right now. 
I'm not talking about the famous pastors that you see on TV who are constantly questioned about their mansions and their expensive clothing, their expensive airplanes. And I mean, I guess there's not a cheap airplane. <laughs> Just okay, can you imagine Jesus ever having to answer such questions of material greed? That's, that's not what Jesus is calling you to or me to. It's not what the Apostle Peter's calling us to either. It's, it's absolutely foreign to the New Testament believer. I'm going to close with a quote that I found, again, from a commentary on 1 Peter. Uh, this is a quote from J.C. Riles. His observation of holy living, listen to this, a holy man will follow after spiritual mindedness. He will endeavor to set his affections entirely on things above and to hold things on earth with a very loose hand. He will not neglect the business of life that now is, but the first place in his mind and thoughts will be given to the life to come. He will aim to live like one whose treasure is in heaven and to pass through this world like a stranger and a pilgrim traveling to his home. Hmm. So, with all that the Apostle Peter has told us in this portion of Scripture, my prayer is that we would have our hearts set on heaven. And we would have our minds renewed daily with the word of God day and night, that our hearts would be filled with the love of God as our mind is filled with the awesomeness of who he actually is. And that although we're living in this world, we would see that we are pilgrims and travelers going to our future home with him. Lord, this is my prayer for you, my prayer for me. May our holiness and service and love bring glory to you. God, I pray that it would bring edification to others and it would be a witness to those around us who don't yet know you. We thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Praying for you. God bless you. Have a great week.